Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When a band forms, there's little expectation that this could be a long-term endeavor. I mean, being a professional musician is hardly a sure thing. So many things could go wrong. But sometimes a group will gain a tiny bit of traction. And then suddenly a year passes and things are still happening. Then two years. Then five. Then ten. And if things are just right when it comes to the music and the audience and the industry and technology and plain stupid luck, the band might wake up one day to find that they've been professional musicians for 25 years. This is exactly what happened with the Trues. I I'm, was actually kind of shocked. Perhaps I wasn't paying attention, or perhaps I'm in denial, but I did not realize that 2022 was 25 years of Trues. Yeah, we've been, been around a really long time. Um, we started in 1996 in my grandmother's basement, like, playing cover songs, um, me and Janagas and Jack. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know where the time went, but definitely went. We try not, we also don't publicize that fact, Alan, very often. So, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to, we're trying to be 29 forever, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that feeling. A band's silver anniversary is cause for celebration. That's a long time to be in this business. So it's a good time to get everyone together to tell some stories. This is the truths in their own words. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another one of those In Their Own Words autobiographies. And this time, Colin McDonald, John Angus McDonald, his brother, and Jack Siparek, the three founding members of the Trues back in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, are here to tell their own story. And, well, we might as well start at the beginning. Now, Antigonish is not really a hotbed of rock and roll. Let's let's be honest. So I, I think we really need to do figure out exactly how you guys came together and then uh, where you went from there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it just started as like us wanting to do something fun and cool in a town where there wasn't a hell of a lot of stuff to do. You know, none of us were really good at sports. And, um, you know, we were all in high school and early years of university and, um you know, Antigonish is a small town, um, and uh, this is long before the internet was everywhere. And, you know, there was just a, a limited amount of things you can do with your time. And, and we just decided, you know, to play in a band and play cover songs and start gigging or in the high schools. And, and even before we were of age, like, get per permission slips so we could play gigs at the local bars. And um, I think that's just kind of why it started. Um, and I guess it continued from there. What uh, do you do normally in Antigonish? What's is it fishing? Is it coal? What is it? It's a university town. Saint Effects University is there, so it's kind of a weird mix of like uh, like white collar people in education, and and then there's like this like fishing forestry kind of on the outskirts of the town. Um, 
yeah, it's it's an interesting place to grow up. There certainly is like a um, they have a lot of like tolerance for the arts. Uh, it's got like a really famous music school at at the at the university, and it didn't feel like we were doing anything that radical. I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Like there was like an acceptance of what we were up to. You know, our, our folks were kind of okay with it and on board with it. There was no other band for you guys, but the Trues. You've only been in this one band. Yeah, but we were called um, One-Eyed Trouser to begin with. Okay, wait, stop. Let's discuss the name. So let's. There's a whole history here, a whole etymology. Let's let's go ahead and do it. So the very first band I I used to have, um, like I started playing in like not serious, like kind of punk and grunge bands in in high school with my friends back w- before we even started. And I, when I was living in Newfoundland, because we lived in New, my fa- our family lived in Newfoundland and in Nova Scotia, and me and my buddy from grade nine really liked Monty Python, and we called our first band One-Eyed Trouser Snake from that song from Meaning of Life. And um, when it came time to start a band with Janangus and Jack, we didn't really have a name, and I just said, well, I used to call this other band One-Eyed Trouser Snake, so we just said, well, let's call ourselves One-Eyed Trouser. And that's where the, where the name originated. Wait, wait, but, but there's still, okay, we're a trouser, or one-eyed trouser. We still have to make the transition to trues. Well, I have to, I'll have to flash forward and flash back then, because we were one-eyed trouser, and we played all these cover gigs around the Guinness for years, like for like all the, the late 90s, we were like the band that played. There was three bars in town, Chuggles, Piper's Pub, and Pat's Place. We mostly played at Chuggles. Piper's Pub was like the most popular bar where all the students went, so we always liked to be able to play there. And then Pat's Place was kind of like the, I don't know, Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. These were all within like a two-mile radius of each other. And um, so we played there forever as a cover band, and then eventually we just wanted to get the hell out of town, and we moved away. And we had a a manager who lived in Buffalo, New York, and he thought our name was like, uh, you know, all the all the eyed bands were like kind of passe. He's like, you should just call your band Trouser. So we called our band Trouser in 2000 when we started like leaving, when we left Nova Scotia and started to make our way living in Ontario and stuff. And right before we put out our very first EP that Gordy Johnson produced in 2002, we got a cease and desist letter from an acid jazz band from Mississauga called Trouser. And we, we didn't even have a fan at this point, let alone like, I mean, what, what do you mean you're sending us a cease and desist letter? But there was a band, an acid jazz band called Trouser. So we had to change our name in a night to the truce. Like it was basically overnight. We had to have a name for the record. And Jack's mother, Jean, called us and said, you guys should call yourselves the trues because the trues mean the same thing as trousers. And the trues is like, it means Scottish pants. Like the like the, there's kilts and then trues are like, they look like kilts, but they're pants. So we're like, okay, we'll call our band the trues. And then literally it went on the EP the next day. And that's how we got the name. Okay. We're gonna have to back up a little bit here. You said you ended up with a manager in Buffalo, uh, Buffalo New York. How did a group from Antigonish, Nova Scotia end up with a, an American agent? I think the one thing we did have going for us, Alan, early on, and uh, was that we were like, we were ambitious to like, get, like get on our way, like get out, like break out of Nova Scotia, break out of Antigonish. And one thing that did was like it led us to like booking our own national tour, like literally cold calling venues. I got told off by so many venues just for bothering them so much <laughs> to try to book us, and we we booked ourselves from Antigonish to Vancouver and back sleeping in the back of the van we built a bed over the amps uh, with aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and and just did it like we were 19 i was just fresh out of high school just like doing it that really old-fashioned adventurous ways we had a uh, tents with us we, it was a it was a huge adventure it was a lot of fun 
But on the way home, one of the only like legit gigs we managed to get was Craig Lasky from uh, The Horseshoe booked us on a new music night. Uh, was that Tuesdays? That must have been Tuesdays, right? Yeah, Tuesdays. And uh, yeah, we played we played the showcase and Craig called us up the next day. Like we were just going home to move back to Nova Scotia. He's like, when can I book you again? So that got us thinking like, well, we should start coming back to Toronto as often as possible. And then I think on our next appearance at The Horseshoe, Dave Taylor, a promoter out of Buffalo, New York, who promoted um, like three or four venues, like big venues, like the Trough and a couple of other spots in Buffalo. He saw us. He's like, you guys need a manager. I've got clubs. I can get you on some good shows. Uh, let me represent you. And he did for a few months. And we would, maybe a year, maybe, I mean, I lose track of the time, but we used to drive into Buffalo, pre, like just pre 9-11, we would cross the border with like a van full of gear and be like, we're staying at our buddy's house on, in the basement. And he booked us on some shows. Um, you know, we played some cool shows in Buffalo. And we started like thinking about setting up shop like more permanently in Ontario, which is what led us to living in. People always ask why Niagara Falls, like Niagara Falls is this big part of our history, but it's because we were living over the river in Buffalo at his house. And we started looking through the papers and visiting these houses. And we ended up renting a house in Niagara Falls uh, at 6289 Main Street, this sort of like rundown former crack den or something. I don't know what it was, but we lived there for like two years and we literally got our career off the ground from, from that house. The first piece of recorded material from the Trues dates all the way back to 1997 and it's barely remembered. Uh, the trouser EP that we did, it was one-eyed trouser and we just, we don't really count that, but I guess, yeah, that is a, it never got officially released except for like, you know, 50 boxes of them showed up at our mother's house and we sold them out of the back of our van. But um, Lawrence Curry, the guy who produced um, One Chord to Another for Sloan, he pressed record on that record. I mean, he was, he kind of engineered it and, and recorded it. And, it, you know, we're not overly proud of it, but it was, yeah, it was our first foray into a recording. Well, it's a kind of cool document, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's, if, if we're doing a retrospective here, I mean, that's something that's, that's part of your history. Has any material survived from that record or is that just completely lost to time? Uh, no, it's, it's still here. Um, people still want to get, want copies of it. There's like, there's not many copies of it left. Um, we launched a Patreon at the beginning of the pandemic and, and one of the, and we had a bunch of these leftover trouser EPs from my mom's house and, um, we, we gave them to a bunch of our diehard fans. So they're, they're floating around there. Here's a quick sample of that EP. This is called Antigonish song. And before you ask, yes, the Trues have always been big fans of the Tragically Hip. Moving on. What were you playing back then? Yeah, it was a mixture because we were like, we had a really, we weren't like trying, I mean, we kind of did everything ass backwards in terms of a band that was like, had a sense of how we're going to fit into a music scene or anything. We were like, let's just move up to Niagara Falls and not get day jobs. So we literally would play like five, six nights a week, anywhere that would book us, mainly around the Southern Ontario region and Niagara region and we would just play like three hours a night and it was like a lot of cover songs and then a lot of our own stuff that we were working on all along just sneaking it in in between you know Tom Petty covers and Beatles covers and Tragically Hip covers and you know um, trying to think of some of the other ones we do like James Brown and the Black Crows and and just like a lot of just rock stuff you know and um, yeah so we were just playing all the time and then writing as we went and uh, yeah that's kind of how we did it. 
One of the first breaks that happened after we parted ways with our first manager, we, we, we got a weekly residency gig at Jeff Healy's bar in, uh, on uh, Bathurst and Queen in Toronto. And uh, we had opened for Jeff in Halifax um, in the summer of 2001. He really liked us. He said, look, I'm starting a bar called Healy's. You guys can be my house band every Thursday. So we took that gig. So we were the house band at Healy's for the entire summer of 2001 into the fall. And from that gig, we ended up... Um, getting the attention of Larry Wanigas, who is, uh, who is the you know, legendary manager. He managed Katie Lang, and, and at the time he was managing Big Sugar. And uh, he came to see us at Healy's, and he really liked us. And then he brought down Gordy Johnson the following week, and Gordy took interest in the band. And we started working with Gordy, like working on our original material and getting a, an album together. And we started doing a few opening shows for Big Sugar. And then through that connection, we opened a couple shows where 97.7 Hits FM were kind of presenting the gig. And they saw the band. They said, you know, you guys should enter Rock Search. I think you guys would do all right. And we went and won it in 2002. So let's go to the first album. This is uh, House of Ill Fame, Gordy Johnson. We figured out how you met him. Uh, and, and he decided that he wanted to produce you guys. This record was, was kind, of a, kind of a hit out of the park. I mean, it is a gold record. And you had the big hit for uh, with, with Not Ready to Go, which was number one on Canadian rock radio. It was the most played song of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, geez. Um, yeah. I mean, we like it started off with Gordy. We in 2002, we, we went into the studio with him and at um, the one in Scarborough, phase one. And we started with the four song EP. Uh, and those four or three of those four songs ended up on the House of Ill fame. But it was the, the record was done kind of piecemeal because we never we never had any money. So we, we went and did three songs um because you know our manage, manager put up some money to put up an ep and then and then because of rock search we won some money to, to work at metalworks in the summer of 2002 and we did three more songs that ended up on the record and then in the uh fall and early winter we we did the rest of it at phase one again and, and, and by by january 1st 2003 it was in the can and it had not ready to go and tired of waiting which were two really big songs for us and we should we should mention that we we partnered up like Larry was sort of the label. Uh, Larry tried to shop us around to everybody at first. You know, it was a hard sell. Uh, but once we had the record in the can and and people heard us heard some of the songs, we had we ended up doing a deal with Sony. And uh, you know that that team they really owned that first those first two records. Uh, they really owned them, and they particularly a guy named Velo Mazik, who was the head of the radio promo department. He heard Not Ready to Go and decided, you know, this is going to be a number one single for you guys. And he, and he really, really worked it and pushed it really hard. And, and through that song, everything started to change. Suddenly, we're getting our first offers to play in arenas, opening for bands. And we were on the road all the time, <laughs> like a couple hundred shows a year, easy for those first couple of years. We just would piggyback onto any tour that would take us. We would do a, a run with Three Days Grace or a run with evanescence or a run with big sugar or a run with you know we were just out with everybody who was out and about at the time and uh yeah it was like through that record through that experience through that song we sort of the fortunes all kind of turned you know Back with more of the truths in their own words in just a sec. We're back with another In Their Own Words show with a band telling their story themselves. And this time it's the truths. 
And right now we're up to the release of the second album. So you you are on the road almost constantly for the next couple of years, and you have to make that that difficult second album, uh, which is Den of Thieves, comes out in 2005. That ends up being another gold album. Uh, but was it hard to make that second record? It was, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, it was, we were, we played from, um, you know, the, from September 1st of 2003 until, um, t- uh, the end of 2004 until like December, 2004, we were on the road and, um, we'd in between tours, we'd always go into the basement and start jamming on riffs and, and song ideas. And then, um, yeah, we had a bunch of stuff that was all half formed, um, you know, 75% of the way there, 25% of the way there. And it was all just like kind of a mad dash to get the second record done. We didn't want to wait. We just figured whatever energy we had behind us, we should just capitalize on it. And um, we we went to Austin, Texas, where Gordy had relocated and, and worked on four or five songs there that ended up on the record. And um, everything else was just demoed in our basement. Um, in, a, in a house in St. Catharines, Ontario, actually. By then, we'd moved over to St. Catharines. And, and um, uh, yeah, it was, it was really quick. And then we got uh, Jack Douglas um, of Aerosmith fame and, and The Who, and, and he worked on John Lennon's Double Fantasy. Like, uh, he was kind of, you know, making a comeback as a producer at the time, and he was doing a lot of work, and we wanted to work with him. So Jack Douglas, we sent him, you know, 20 demos and asked him to produce the record, and he agreed. And by the... Uh, winter of uh, 2005, we were in the studio in Toronto making it. Yeah, the Jack Douglas connections are rather interesting. He must have been about 125 years old when you when you worked with him then. At the time, like like because we like we went from kind of like being like get, I mean in this business sometimes it's, you're doing everything wrong and then you're doing everything right and it's kind of weird. You're like oh, and then like the labels like just make a list of anybody you want to work with and we're like okay. <laughs> And we just made this huge list of everybody from like Rick Rubin to like, you know, we're like, oh, Aerosmith Rocks is one of our favorite records, like Jack Douglas. We looked up like everybody at the time. I remember I remember Jack and Dino came to see our gig in Vancouver because we wanted to work with somebody who worked with Nirvana and, and he came out and checked out the gig. And he was there with Jack Douglas at the same time and they saw us play in Vancouver and Jack and Dino saw Jack Douglas. He goes, nah, man, you got to use him. Don't even, don't even, don't even worry about it. And he just said, use Jack Douglas. I remember that. So you open for the Stones, you open for Robert Plant. Uh, that's a pretty big step up from a band from Antigonish. Yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it's even, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, um, we, yeah, we were, we were in Toronto working on our record, uh, working on Den of Thieves with Jack Douglas all through the winter of 05. And then summer was coming around. We put out a single, which was So She's Leaving, and that became like a pretty big hit at radio. And then in the summer, there was like rumors that the Stones were in Toronto uh, rehearsing, which weren't rumors. They were actually in Toronto rehearsing and that they were going to do a secret show and in, in uh, at the Phoenix or, or somewhere, you know? And I remember talking to Larry that summer because we were in town trying to, you know, doing interviews and press for our follow-up record. And, and he was... Uh, and I'm like, oh, can we please get tickets to go see the Stones? Like, that would be so cool, you know? Can we just try to get us into that gig? And I remember we were out doing some kind of press or something, and, and Larry calls calls me and says, like, I can't get you tickets, but you can open for them. <laughs> <laughs> you must have had a heart attack. And, and the worst part, well, the craziest part was that he goes, they're going to be playing there in 24 hours. 
uh, Charlie Watts had just gotten over his first bout with cancer. So they're like, it's all hinging on how Charlie's doing. If Charlie's not feeling well, they're not going to do it. So you can't tell anybody. Oh. So until tomorrow, when you guys get the sound check, and if the Stones decide to cancel, if they decide to cancel, it's not happening. So don't get your hopes up. Like, like be ready to play. Be ready to be amazing. Be ready to open for the Stones. And it might not happen. Like, it was like that kind of thing in 24 hours. So it was like, we're sitting there like, we can't tell anybody this like insane news. And... Um, and then, you know, the day went by and we're all just like walking around knowing that we might be opening for the Stones at the Phoenix tomorrow. And uh, it was just a strange mixed mixture of emotions. And then, um, uh, yeah, the next day we went to the Phoenix and it was soundcheck. And we walked in and um, there was the Rolling Stones, you know, soundchecking on the stage at, at the Phoenix. You know, um, they were doing, uh, I remember they did Sway and Dead Flowers and like, I guess the show is happening, you know, and uh it was really, really cool. And, and we were just told by one of the road managers, you know, if the band likes you, you guys can come down and get a picture with them after you're done playing. And we're like, okay, better play good. And um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was stressful, but really like the good kind of stress. And uh, I guess they liked us because we went down and, and did a picture with them after our set. How about Robert Plant? That was just another surreal offer, but that was a whole tour. We did, we went from like, Toronto to Victoria doing like the rinks. So we did like the Saddle Dome and the Rex Hall and all the different uh hockey rinks, sheds. He was he was working his uh Strange Sensation album, the the Mighty Rearranger, I think it was called. And so it was like a full-on tour. I think we did like a dozen dates or something. And that was the first thing we did to sort of promote the record. So again, like the energy around the band was really high and the uh, the visibility was really high and then here we were getting on a bus to tour with uh, the golden god himself and it was uh he didn't disappoint he was so friendly i mean he came to our first sound check to like check out our guitars and introduce himself and and just be a kind dude and uh he was playing all kinds of led zeppelin um you know he was doing a lot of like the ballady stuff like going to california and that's the way and it was just like to sit back in the rink and watch that every night when you're done playing was uh a total dream come true kind of stuff you know yeah, it's like, uh, I like my job. Things are going well. I like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, um, even famously, I mean, I don't know if you want to cut this out or whatever, but I've told the story before, I'll tell it again. But we we were, again, riding high, doing press every day. Like every day we're at the radio station doing the song and talking to the, the, the guys. And, and somebody called in live and said, like, I heard you guys used to cover Bohemian Rhapsody in your like cover band days, and it always brought the house down. And I dare you to do it tonight. And we were going down to play like a sold out, wherever the Oilers play, Rex Hall or whatever it's called. And so the, the, the set ends, we did our time. We had five minutes left and Colin calls it. He's like, we're going to do Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> as our closing song. And we did like kind of a punky version. It was clearly not the, the full Freddie Mercury, but it was always brought the house down. And uh, so we got a standing ovation. And then we got word that we really ticked Robert Plant off <laughs> and he didn't want us doing that anymore. Uh, I don't know if it was the standing O or if it was the, he told us it was because he knew Freddie and we're not here to relive the past. And he was very, it was weird getting dressed down by Robert Plant. He actually uh, accosted our drummer, Sean, as he was setting up his kit the next day in Calgary. And he was telling, he was like, Sean from Newfoundland, from St. John's Newfoundland. He's like, if you had told me when I was growing up listening to Zeppelin that the singer would be telling me off for covering <laughs> Queen at, at the arena last night, I would never have believed it. But anyway, he did, for, he's right. He was right. He was right. We're not there to like, you know, 
bring the house down with like a cheap gimmick and we respected his wishes and we didn't do it again. But then he felt kind of bad. I remember that night in, in, uh, in Calgary at the Saddle Dome. He's like, you know, Canada's always had such a rich history of songwriting and with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and the Trues. And I took that as his, uh, his apology for, for telling us <laughs> off. Third album, 2008, No Time for Later. Another couple of Juno nominations. This is the first uh, album that you get released in the U.S., is it not? First one properly is the first one sort of properly released and promoted. We, we always ended up getting like Larry would always broker some like one-off deals with some imprint label. Uh, but I feel like no time was the first time we really gave it the push with uh, Merovingian was the label and EMI subsidiary. And we spent a boatload of money promoting hold me in your arms at active rock radio down there. So I think it was the first big, big American push that we did. And that was the reason we hired Gus and Warner to produce it was because they were to us making like the best active rock, like, you know, Priestess, remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that record, Hello Master, we heard that and, and we're like this, these guys are up to something really cool and they live, they're living in Brooklyn. So we moved to Brooklyn for the summer of 07, rented a house in Brooklyn for two months and made, and made that record. Did it have any traction in the U.S.? It got played on like um, like all like there was Sirius Satellite like the Alternative Nation one and stuff. I know that two songs got played there: "Hold Me in Your Arms" and "Paranoid Freak." But it was definitely it wasn't like a you know uh, home run, but uh, it definitely got a little bit a little bit of traction. We did a lot a lot of tours. We ended up doing um, like a six week trek, uh, opening for Ace Frehley at House of Blues all over America, and. Uh, Oh God, I, I I hesitate to ask the things that you may have seen on that tour. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, like everything from like like literally calling the the city the wrong name. Like there was one of those like in Cleveland, he said "Good evening, St. Louis" or like something like that, and like some cool, hilarious stuff. But the funniest thing for me is that I don't know. I, you know, I got really, really sick before that tour, and we're not a band that can cancel tours, and we we couldn't then, we won't now. So it's like. Um, I got this really, really bad bronchial infection and, and I always sing really high. I sing really hard. But for the first like three weeks of that Ace Frehley tour, I couldn't sing. It was a nightmare. Like I was in front of a thousand plus people a night at all these House of Blues opening for like a lot of like hesitant, just diehard. We only like Kiss fans, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like guys with the makeup. They weren't like they weren't like, oh, I wonder what new music's out there. They're just like, we like Kiss and that's it. And maybe Ace Frehley. You know what I mean? That's it. Like and and I couldn't sing a note. And they, their crew was always really cool with us. They were super accommodating and really sweet. And uh, three weeks in, I finally got my voice back because I finally got on some like antibiotics I paid for in America just to like, I got to get this out of my system. And um, and I started being able to sing again. And like towards the end of that tour, like they're a really famous, they had a really famous, um, what was his name, Night Bob? He was like their, fa- Night Bob. he's a really, really, a really famous sound guy, Rody, and he came up to me. He's like, "Hey, man, you guys are doing so great. You're you're really learning how to sing on this tour." I'm like, oh. <laughs> "Night, Bob. Yeah, Aeros- Aerosmith's old sound man." <laughs> so that was pretty funny. So then we move in, move into some uh, some more live stuff with the uh, the acoustic friends and total strangers uh, album that was done at the CBC headquarters in downtown Toronto, was it not? Glenn Gould, yeah, the Glenn Gould Theater, because we were in. It, it stems back to this trip we took to Japan, where we went and played at the consulate with um, 
like Bedouin Sound Clash and the band that ended up being the Rural Alberta Advantage. I think they were called something else back then, Wooden Hands or something like that. And the Russian Futurists and there was this, oh, Alex Cuba. We went and did this like really versatile bill at the uh, Oscar Peterson Theater over in, uh, in Tokyo. And they couldn't really accommodate our like heavy equipment, loud rock show. And Larry suggested like, you guys should just play acoustic. Like you guys sound great when you, or maybe it wasn't Larry, but somebody came up with the idea of playing acoustic. And so we did this acoustic set that went over like gangbusters and um, somebody thought we should maybe get this down. So we did this live uh, two night recording of, uh, of just our own stuff done acoustically, which, which ended up going over really well and led to like multiple tours in that, in that format and kind of gave, it was like a new kind of uh, lease on, on some of the material. It was, it was cool. And it's around this time that the Highway to Heroes single gets released. Yeah, ish. Yeah. yeah. yeah around. Yeah. Yeah, ish. Like what happened was in, when we got back from Japan, we decided we're going to like, you know, stop touring the No Time for Later record for a bit and, and record an acoustic thing. And that was January of 09. And then that was in the can. Janangus mixed it and you produced it. And, and we were getting ready to go out on our first acoustic tour in October of 09. And that was the, like the night before we went on tour, two nights before I, me and Janangus and Gordy Johnson wrote Highway of Heroes over the phone. And then we, and it, and it happened in like 15 minutes and, and, and we started playing it on that first acoustic tour. But it, yeah, so that's when that first ha- started to happen. Is, is there a particular reason why you would pick that, uh, pick that topic for a song? Um, so around the time we were, I was talking to my mother. Um, there was a girl from my hometown named Nicola Goddard. She went to high school with John Angus and Jack. She used to book us for the high school dances. She was like a real, like, amazing person. Um, really smart. Um, kind of like, you know, a renaissance woman. And she ended up joining the Canadian armed forces and she went over to serve in Afghanistan and she was the first female killed in combat in 2006 and uh, that really was a huge uh, it was a huge tragedy and it was it, it rocked our town because it's a small town everybody knows everyone and um, in 2009 they were writing a book on her that ended up uh, being a book called Sunray and they were interviewing uh, everybody that knew her in our hometown um, and my mom taught her at school and my mom was interviewed for the book and I was talking to my mom. She goes, oh, you know, it was just one of those, hey, mom, how's it going? I'm just about to head on tour, just checking in. She goes, oh, I'm just, I'm so sad. I just had to do this interview about Nicola and it just made me so sad and, and angry that, she, you know, that this had to happen to this beautiful person fighting in Afghanistan. And, and just the story, it really moved me and it just brought up a lot. And I was like, you know, I, I think we should write a song about her. And uh, John Angus and I, for whatever reason, we were at our jam space. We weren't jamming because we were getting ready to go on tour. Um, and we just started jamming on this song for her. And um, we called up Gordy, who we wrote a bunch of songs with, and said, like, we're trying to write this song for, for Nicola. We got, we got this and that, and the song's going to be called Highway of Heroes. And then Gordy called back and added some words, and we had the song pretty quickly. And I remember my first time playing it through, I started to cry and I'd never done that with anything. Like I don't, I'm not the kind of guy who's typically moved by my own, you know, moved to tears by my own work. But like I was, I was sitting there playing and I was like, this is, this is really powerful. And then we started playing it every night on tour and everybody was just like, wow, what the hell is this? This is really special. And, um, and then we got home from that tour and went into the studio in January of 2010 and recorded it and then put it out after that. Carry me 
Still more from the Trues in their own words in just a sec. Back with more of the Trues in their own words. And here is the Bruce Springsteen story. So on this particular tour, you support Bruce Springsteen and you got the stamp of approval from from the boss. Yeah, um, we opened for him down in, in Moncton, uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, uh, uh, Mag- Magnetic Hill. And um, they added, we, we asked if, you know, we just asked to look into it. If, they, if they're looking for an opening act, we'd be glad to do it. And uh, yeah, we got the okay. And, um, you know, it was us and Tom Cochran and Bruce Springsteen and it's on a beautiful day in late August. And, um, you know, we wanted to meet him as, as you would. If you get a chance to play with Bruce Springsteen, you'd like to meet the boss. And, uh, you know, people were, uh, we were kind of, we asked our road manager to ask their road manager, his road manager, like, can we organize a picture? And they said, well, you know, Bruce, Bruce likes to, you know, Bruce takes a long time to get ready for his shows. He plays really long and he, you know, he's he likes to just get out and, and go. He doesn't want to like hang out and talk too much before the gig. I totally understood. But we're like, why don't you guys just hang out by the stage when they're about to take the stage and see if he does, you know, take a quick picture. And, you know, it was one of those crazy things where, like, you know, the entire band showed up on the grounds and there were all these escalades. Like, it's like, okay, the guy is coming. Like, the man is coming around. Like, you know, it's like it, you could feel the excitement. And, and there was all security everywhere and these, you know, like what, like I said, a procession of vehicles and, and outstepped the backup singers and the and, and Niles Lofgren and, and all these other – his name's Niles Lofgren, right? Is that the guy in the band? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and all these people were walking out. We're like, okay, cool. And then in the background, we saw this little – um, you know, this little golf cart ripping around. And I'm like, whoever's in that golf cart is going to get fired because they're like really sticky with security back here. Like they weren't being that laid back. And it was, and this golf cart was like ripping around as it got closer. It was fucking Bruce Springsteen driving the golf cart with little Steven and um, the drummer, uh, Max. Yeah. At, Weinberg, yeah. In the, in the car, he comes ripping right up to us and comes out like, he seemed like he was 14 years old, like that amount of energy. And he looked like G.I. Joe. He was like, this is like, like he looked like a superhero, you know, like the way American stars at their best, you know? And he just came right up and he's like, how you doing? We're like, oh, we're good, man. Good, Bruce Springsteen. We're good. And he's like, he was like, yeah, uh, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from Antigonish. He's like, where is that? I'm like, it's like two hours down the down the road east. He's like, oh, it's cool. Do you know Twist and Shout? I'm like, yep, I do. Yeah, I know Twist and Shout. He goes, come sing it with me in the encore, all you guys. Okay? I'm like, cool. All right. We did a picture, and then he went on stage. We're like, oh, shit. Okay, we better, we better stay sober enough over the next three hours of his show so we can play Twist and Shout in the encore decently, you know? And uh, that's how that happened. And, and we got up and did like a 12-minute version of Twist and Shout at the end of his set. And uh, it's on YouTube. If you, if you look up Bruce Springsteen with the Trues, it's, there's, that version's on YouTube. This brings us to the fourth album, Hope and Ruin. Uh, and that was Gord Sinclair at the Hip Studio, the bath, uh, the bathhouse in, in um, you know, outside of Kingston. So by the time you're, you're at your fourth album by 2011 and you, you must have a, you must have a, pro, a series of procedures and protocols and a way of doing things by then. Yeah. I mean, it was, it really, it, it, it really was, it's the level of band that you can never kind of stop ever. So we're like, we were doing well and we were making a living, but we were touring all the time. And then getting, as soon as you get off the road, the the panic sets in, oh, we got to do this whole record thing again and keep this moving. So 
you know, um, we, I guess like it always just starts with us messing around with ideas in our jazz space and then going like, okay, we need something to, to get the creative juices flowing. And oftentimes uh, that involves, you know, teaming up with a new production team or a new producer. And um, we were kind of in that void, like in January of 2010, we had finished the acoustic album and the acoustic run. We had Highway of Heroes in the can, or we were about to have Highways of Heroes in the can, sorry. And then Gord Sinclair, uh, we've known Gord for, at this point in time, we'd opened for the hip in 2004 and, and we always kept in touch with him. And Gord offered us some days to come out to Bath and write and record and just jam and hang out and see how it feels. And we went out and did that in the winter uh, January of, of 2010. And that's how that record got kind of off the ground. Yeah, the sort of vision for that record was to, like, I, I remember talking to Gord about, like, can we bring what we do acoustically and what we do on our most high octane energy nights, like under the same umbrella on one record? That was sort of the the idea, which is like, so it's, I guess why it's one of our more like diverse sounding records. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of songs on it. But I credit Gord and I credit the vibe. You've you've been there, I'm sure, Alan, to the the hip studio. It's it's like working in their imagination or something. It's like it's you get caught up in this web of this this feeling of uh of that of that place. I love working there. It's an old coach house just off the road. There's a swimming pool, there's a basketball court, you can play road hockey, there's a big grand piano, there's places to live and in and sleep upstairs. It's one of these these old style live work recording studios absolutely um and and it's a hip museum as well and for for kids who like my first arena show that really meant anything to me was watching the hip on phantom power in the late 90s when they came to halifax i'd never really been to a big arena show and watching downey own the stage the way he did and watch the band deliver on the level that they did that never left me so getting to play with them was amazing getting to know them was amazing and then getting to work in this like house that's a, technically a hip museum you know you've got the, the console from phantom power sitting over there and the the painting from in between evolution is sitting over here and then the, the original artwork from fully completely is hanging on the wall so it was just a great place to to be for for months on end and being being creative So we get to the fifth album in 2015, uh, which is simply called The Trues. You, uh, there's there's an interesting relationship that you guys have had with Classic Rock Magazine in the UK. I, that's a bit um, odd to me. How, how did that relationship come together? They that's a very supportive uh, magazine of like new music, just generally. Um, like uh, you know, if you sort of fit the mold of of what they promote, they're very generous. Like they they nominated us for an award on our second album, like a best new band award uh, at the UK Classic Rock Awards. And I went over there, and I was sitting at like the, Jimmy Page was there, and Steven Tyler was there, and all these insane giants from the classic rock world were there. Uh, so then they were always really really supportive. Um, every time we put out a record, they reviewed it and they. Uh, you know, would interview us for it. Um, and then I guess come that 2014, 15 album, the, the self-titled one, they actually packaged the record with every issue and gave away like 90,000 copies of it in the UK with, with Classic Rock Magazine.
We did one other record at, in 2018. We did Civilian Airs and then and then COVID. Oh yeah, Civilian Airs. Um, who produced that record? Derek Hoffman. He's a, a young, amazing producer from. Well, he's in Toronto now. I'm not sure where he's from originally. But uh, yeah, that was a more of a departure for us. That was the first time we made a record kind of not live off the floor. We were kind of in his basement studio on the east end of Toronto, kind of building tracks and singing over them. So it was a bit of a sonic departure for us, but uh, it was well received and it was a good, good record. It got nominated for a Juno that year. Then came COVID. How did you guys cope with COVID? Oh, uh, we didn't. Um, now we, we tried to stay really busy. Um, like we started doing, like we immediately, like my feeling when COVID hit was like, I'm, I just, I was a bit of a pessimist. I'm like, this is not going to end after a two week lockdown. Like this is going to be for a long time. I just had that feeling on a deep, deep level that this was going nowhere uh, fast. So you know, we immediately started doing like on, a lot of online concerts, like a lot of like I would do sessions from my couch in Toronto, just playing songs every Friday night. We did a lot. We, we launched a Patreon. We just did as much as we could with whatever was available. So we did a lot of songwriting and a lot of like home demoing and then a lot of just going on our Instagram and on our Facebook and reaching out to the fans and playing for them and, and giving them content. Like we had a song called Godspeed Rebel that we never released and we decided to release a a single for it and a video using only Zoom because that's all we could use. We weren't allowed to be in the same room together. So we just kind of scrambled for two years and uh, just tried to make it and make up for whatever we couldn't do, which was go out and make a living as a live band. And uh, yeah, it was, I, I'm sure every band has the same story. It was, uh, yeah, it's pretty, a, a sea change would be an understatement. Yeah, no kidding. I remember when I, I Want to Play came out and I think that pretty much summed up the attitude of, everybody who's in a band yeah 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 we did enough. manage to write a lot of songs which was that was the silver lining there were little silver linings here and there and we we wrote a lot we did manage to get a whole other record out uh which came out late in 21 finally um so yeah we, we were able to do that but it's just not you know it's not quite the same without the uh the constant interaction with your bass and your fans and like sort of what we live for and what our fans expect from us and so it, it's going to be really nice to get back at it, which I'll knock on wood when I say that. But we have a pretty full summer ahead. The Trues and their COVID-era song, I Want to Play, an track that's turned up on their 2021 album, The Wanderer. All right, let's uh, end up with this. What is the future for the Trues? This is 25 years into our career. What more do you want to accomplish? What more do you think you can do? Maybe Jack will answer that one. Well, we can each take a take a crack. Jack, you go first. Well, yeah, I'd like to say uh, that the three of us, me and John Angus and Colin, formed a connection like years ago. And it feels like a, it's a lifelong connection. It's one of those. so. We continue to inspire each other and always looking for the next song. And uh, we really enjoy it. So I see it continuing for years to come. And I hope to continue traveling the world and making music, making that, that moment on stage or in the studio 
and seeing people have a good time. I agree. I think I, Alan, I mean, I hope, I hope our best song is still ahead of us and I know a bunch of good shows are still ahead of us. Um, you know, just to keep what we have and grow it and, and continue on would be, that would be success. Yeah, I, I agree with the guys. And I think that like, you know, just keep on, as long as we're doing this, I think we need, we need to keep getting better at it, keep refining it. And, um, and we're kind of like in this spot where we have really great fans and, and, and they allow us uh, a long leash creatively. Like they kind of follow us on a lot of our different, you know, journeys uh, musically. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, we can keep, you know, being something that people want to go see and it's exciting and it's good. And it makes you feel good. And uh, that's all you can really hope for as a band. It's just, it's just entertainment and it's fun and it's, uh, and it should be a good time and it should leave you uh, smiling and, uh, hopefully people are leaving the, the, the hall singing a couple tunes and, you know, uh, just, yeah, never not being a good time for people uh, in, a, in a good way, you know, a meaningful, a meaningful good time. Before we go, uh, I want to thank all the guys from The Trues for joining me. The only person we were missing was drummer Chris Gormley. And, and given how difficult it can be for every member of a band to be available at the same time, I mean, three out of four is pretty good. We are thinking of you, Chris. If you're a Truce fan, get the podcast version of this show because it features bonus interview material. You can get that wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to binge on everything else we have to offer. More music news and information at my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every day. You should also get the free daily newsletter so you don't miss anything. We can also meet up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and email is encouraged. Send whatever you've got to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.